Hi. Good evening and welcome. I'm Davianni Saltzman, the Director of Public Programming here at the AGO and very excited that Mesrat is here from Princeton for this conversation. Before we begin, and I introduce Dr. Sasha Suda, our curator of European art, I'd like to just acknowledge where we are. The Art Gallery of Ontario operates on land that has been the site of human activity for 15,000 years. It's the territory of the Anishinaabe Nation and the historical territory of the Huron-Wendat, Neutral, and Seneca Nations. The Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant is an agreement between the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. Toronto is also governed by a treaty between the federal government of Canada and the Mississaugas of the New Credit. It has always been a trading center for the First Nations. Without further ado, my wonderful colleague who is very much responsible with Mesret for tonight, I'd like to introduce Dr. Sasha Suda, Curator of European Art and R. Fraser Elliott, Chair of Prints and Drawings. Thank you, Devyani, and uh, to my other colleagues in public programs and learning, Annie Roper and Kathleen McLean, who helped to organize tonight and to help you know, spread the word about this incredible lecture, which is actually the kickoff to an incredible small exhibition that we're opening on October 20th called Ethiopian Art, 1400 to 1800, which you can come back to see in the galleries then. The show is not open tonight, but what you can see tonight, which is even more of a treat, are the objects outside of the glass. So after the lecture, you can follow AGO staff up to the prints and drawings study room, and there you can view and talk about and learn about the objects without the intervention of anything between you and them. It's such a treat, and we're really enjoying it. Some folks did it before the talk, and I'd encourage you to do so as well. I also want to acknowledge uh, my colleague Suzanne Akbari, who is here tonight and the director of the Medieval Study Centre at the University of Toronto. This project very much came out of a series of conversations about the study of Ethiopian art and language in Toronto. There is so much going on at the University of Toronto and there are wonderful collections within the Art Gallery of Ontario and in private collections with whom we are affiliated. And we really feel that this is a place to start and have a conversation about this art, its meaning, significance, and its relevance to our community today. So you can look forward to lots of discussion moving into the future and other rotations and exhibitions, hopefully as well. Tonight we have the treat of hearing a colleague, a medieval studies colleague, speak to us on this topic. One of the rising stars in the field of manuscript studies, medieval studies, but of course also the study of Ethiopian art. Mezrat Algira is a PhD candidate in the art and archeology span department at Princeton University. Her research explores artistic and cultural exchange across the medieval Mediterranean and Northeast Africa focusing on biblical illuminated manuscripts. Her dissertation is a study of the complex relationship between text and imagery in 13th and early 14th century illuminated gospel manuscripts produced at an island monastery in northern Ethiopia. Please join me in welcoming Meserat to Toronto and to the Art Gallery, and thank you for speaking with us. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Sasha Suda and Suzanne Akbari, who've been incredibly supportive uh, throughout this process. And thank you, Sasha, for that wonderful introduction uh, and for your very kind invitation to speak here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. It is an enormous pleasure for me to be here. Uh, and I would like to thank you all for coming out tonight um, to hear my presentation. Thank you. The longest and most venerable tradition of art making in Ethiopia represents religious subjects and themes at the core of, e of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Ethiopia became one of the earliest nations to adopt Christianity when the Yaksumite King Izana converted to the faith in the mid-fourth century. The subsequent centuries witnessed the construction of numerous churches and monastic residences 
which became the site for the production, display, and promotion of Ethiopian artistic endeavors. Churches and monasteries were furnished with extensive wall paintings depicting biblical scenes or portraits of saints and housed intricately crafted liturgical objects such as painted icons and metal processional crosses. Today, the great variety and craftsmanship of the surviving artwork attests to Ethiopia's development of a strong local tradition of artistic production, as well as its active participation in global artistic exchange in the ancient and medieval periods. And I use the world, the designation medieval deliberately in order to challenge you to think of the medieval period outside of the European world. Today, I'd like to draw your attention to the achievements that characterized the ancient and medieval artistic production in Ethiopia in the hopes that my presentation provides you with the historical and cultural context with which to view and understand the objects exhibited in the museum. The Aksumite Kingdom flourished in the first seven centuries of the Common Era in the northern highlands of modern-day Ethiopia and parts of Eritrea. With their capital situated in the city of Aksum in what is now northeastern Ethiopia, Aksumite rulers extended their political and territorial domain as far as parts of Nubia and South Arabia, ruling these regions at regular intervals between the third and sixth centuries. Within its territories, the kingdom developed into a complex and literate society that carried out the construction of monumental architecture, including the construction of elaborate monoliths. The kingdom practiced metal metallurgy, pottery and glassmaking, as well as ivory carving, and produced manuscripts in the indigenous language of Ge'ez, or classical Ethiopic. And it also issued its own coinage. And I want to point out a few things for you here. Um, these are the mon monolithic obelisks, ivory car carving, metalwork, glasswork, and coinage. Um, are you able to see my cursor as I, as I move it? Okay, great, thanks. Outside its domain, the Aksumite Kingdom maintained trade links with the Eastern Mediterranean, as well as with the territories over the Red Sea and as far as the Indian Ocean. Today, the surviving monolithic obelisks in Aksum bear witness to the architectural achievement of the Aksumite Kingdom representing its enormous expenditure of wealth and labor force. Each of these obelisks, or upright monumental pillars, constructed from a single block of stone, the largest of which once measured 30 meters high and weighed about 520 tons, marked important burials and, stu and stood over prominent positions overlooking the site below. Constructed in the form of multi-story buildings with a door in the front and horizontal beams and windows carved on all sides, the obelisks incorporated key features, such as the projecting, projecting rounded ends at the, at the beams that you see. Oh, I skipped one of these, sorry. So these, the, fe the features that I want to highlight first are the projecting rounded ends of the beams known today as monkey heads and the curved tops of the obelisks, with which both become distinctive features of Aksumite architecture. These forms will repeat in the architecture of Christian churches in medieval Ethiopia, attesting to the continuation and prestige of Aksumite visual forms and the discerning ways with which Ethiopian artists and patrons look to their past for inspiration. Here we have interior and exterior views of the church of the monastery at Dabradammu, one of the oldest Ethiopian monasteries located on, the on top of a plateau in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. And highlighted there, you see the monkey heads, so-called monkey heads projecting from the interior and the exterior walls. The sequence of alternating horizontal beams can also be seen in the church of Yumrahanna Christos, south of Tigray in the Wello region of Ethiopia, 
and you can see the sort of the window shapes here replicating the top of the obelisks. Here again, you have one of the 11 rock-hewn churches at Lalibela, the church of uh, Emmanuel or Beta Emanuel. And here again, you see these beams and the windows. The introduction of Christianity as the state religion around the second quarter of the fourth century had an enormous impact on the subsequent development of the Aksumite kingdom, which styled itself as a Christian state and established diplomatic relations with other powerful Christian territories across the Mediterranean, such as the Byzantine Empire. It is important to note that alongside Armenia, Ethiopia is one of the oldest nations to declare officially Christianity as its state religion. The early adoption of Christianity can be attested by material evidence, such as extant monumental inscriptions and Im imagery on Aksumite coins. The coin evidence is particularly striking. The kingdom of Aksum began to issue its own coinage in the last quarter of the third century, at a time when the kingdom's wealth and prosperity were rapidly increasing and it continued until the middle decades of the seventh century when Aksum stopped issuing coins after a stage of decline. The period between the third and seventh centuries coincide with the height of Aksumite power and participation in international trade with the Roman Empire through Egypt, with the Southern Arabian kingdoms, and with parts of India. A major iconographic shift on the coinage that occurred during the, the reign of King Izana, who ruled from about 330 to approximately 365, 370, provides us with the earliest visual evidence of the adoption of Christianity in this region. The initial gold coins issued under King Izana portray the king on both sides of the coin, flanked by two curved wheat stalks with a Greek inscription identifying the king running along the edge of the coin. At the very top appears a small crescent and disc symbol. The use of the crescent and disc symbol known since the first millennium BC, since before, uh, since, sorry, known since the first millennium before the common era on obelisks, altars, and incense burners in both South Arabia and the region of Aksum has been associated with the pagan gods of the polytheistic faith followed by the king and his subjects during this period. By the middle of Izana's reign, however, a dramatic change occurs on his gold coins. On top of the king's image, we can see that the crescent and disc symbol is replaced by a Christian cross. The appearance represents a powerful visual symbol of the king's new faith and his adherence to the Christian God. It communicates the kingdom's new religion not only to the local subjects, but also to regions outside of Ethiopia, where we know these coins circulated through trade. Izana's gold coinage also provides us with important early evidence for the centrality of the image of the cross in Ethiopian Christianity and the special association between royal power and crystal devotion. As numerous medieval examples demonstrate, the image of the cross occupies a prominent place in the visual vocabulary of Christian Ethiopia. Perhaps one of the most famous examples is the church uh, in Lalibela, or the, the church of St. George or Beta Georgis, one of the 11 rock-hewn churches in the town. And as you can see, the entire form of the church is in the shape of the cross. A considerable amount of artistry is also devoted to the intricate designs of processional crosses, which you see on the left, and hand crosses held by priests, which you see on the right. Your, sorry, your left, my, yeah, I'm right. In addition to the visual evidence on the coinage, King Izana's adoption of Christianity can be corroborated by monumental inscriptions set up during his reign. Izana's pre-Christian monumental inscriptions declare his devotion to the pagan deities named Mahram, Astar, and Beher. In several of his subsequent inscriptions, however, we can detect a significant change. 
One example is a bilingual inscription written in Greek and Ge'ez that commemorates the king's military victory in Nubia. This, inscriptions, this inscription opens with the dedicatory line, by faith in God and by the power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, to him who has saved my kingdom through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, to whom who helped me and, he, and who always helps me. Here the king explicitly dedicates his victory to the Trinity and declares his faith in Christ through a highly visible monument that would have no doubt occupied a prominent position in Aksum. And here I want to stress the significant value of these inscriptions in shedding light not only on the early history of Christianity in Ethiopia, but also on the ancient heritage of writing in this region. Archaeological research has uncovered several inscriptions in Aksum which confirm the existence of an indigenous writing system. The presence of an indigenous form of writing to transcribe the local language of Ge'ez was a critical component for the development of manuscript culture in Ethiopia. Moreover, the existence of bilingual inscriptions, which had writing, writing in both Ge'ez and Greek, suggests the knowledge of Greek, at least among elite members of Aksumite society and or among its foreign residents, further highlighting the kingdom's overseas connections that ensured not only the trade of goods, but also the exchange of ideas and culture. So by the time Christianity arrived in Ethiopia in the fourth century, the necessary conditions for the translation and writing of Christian texts and manuscripts already existed. This review of the material evidence that we find on Aksumite coinage, architecture, and inscriptions sheds light on a technologically advanced, sophisticated, and literate kingdom that participated in international trade and cultural exchange. I'd argue that the examination of this ancient heritage is important for how we view and think about later developments in Ethiopian art, architecture, and manuscript production. Too often in the scholarship, Ethiopian artistic production and architectural achievements of the medieval period, or in, in the time between the 11th and 15th centuries, are considered to be the products of foreign influence. Attributing such developments to foreign influence, however, risks, risks the characterization of Ethiopian art as derivative and overlooks Ethiopian artistic agency and motivations. When we look at the Aksumite kingdom, it becomes clear that Ethiopia had a robust tradition of visual culture and writing already in the ancient period, which by the fourth century becomes thoroughly Christianized. I focus on this heritage not in any way to discount Ethiopia's contact and exchange with the rest of the Christian world across the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, but to emphasize that Ethiopian art flourished as a result of active participation in this world rather than passive reception, which the word influence often evokes. This active participation on the international stage, along with strong local tradition, is what leads to the growth of Ethiopian manuscript production following the process of, Christian, of Christianization. I will now turn to the art of illuminated manuscripts in Ethiopia. Ethiopian manuscripts consists of parchment or page leaves made out of animal skin, most often goat skin, bound into a book by two wooden boards joined together by leather attachments. With additional cost, a book could be covered in a reddish brown leather decorated with tooled ornamental designs, or to ensure further protection, manuscripts could be covered in tailor-made and vibrantly colored fabrics. The writing is done by hand using a pen made out of reeds and organic black ink made from powder, charcoal, or soot. On the left, on the right, you see decoration surrounding the text block. This decoration, which becomes quite ubiquitous in uh, Ethiopian illuminated manuscripts, um, 
represents this sort of interlace with circles, which um, in some manuscripts seems like they were done with uh, tools like um, sort of compasses. And uh, there's a term for these in, for this interlace and uh, border and is known as harag, uh, meaning tendrils. The most lavish manuscripts also include elaborate and colorful images painted using pigment derived from minerals and vegetables. Such images and manuscripts are called miniatures. The adoption of Christianity prompted the rise of a rich Christian literary tradition in, in Ethiopia. By the end of the sixth century, the translation of both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible had been complete. Scholars agree that the text found in, early, in the earliest manuscripts of the Ge'ez Bible is based on the translation from the Greek. The integral place of the art of manuscript illumination within this early history can be attested by two illuminated gospel manuscripts known as Abba Garima Gospels 3 and Abba Garima Gospels 1, which according to radiocarbon tests date to 330 to 650 and 530 to 660 respectively. Housed at the monastery of Enda Abba Garima in northern Ethiopia, these manuscripts contain ornately framed canon tables and evangelist portraits. While the Garima Gospels serve as key, albeit so far only witnesses to the early flourishing of Ethiopian manuscript illustration, the survival of a significant number of illuminated Ge'ez Gospel books dated between the 13th and 15th century highlight the continuation and growth of this tradition in the medieval period. Manuscripts containing the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John represent the most extensively illustrated genre of Ethiopian manuscripts in this period and form a significant part of this long-standing long tradition of local manuscript culture. In the next portion of my presentation, I will discuss the characteristic features of illuminated gospel manuscripts produced in Ethiopia between 1280 and 1500. Many integral parts, sorry, skipped. Oh. Many integral parts of the pictorial program in these gospel manuscripts can already be found in the Abba Garima Gospels, providing us with early and local evidence for this development. The beginning of the Gospel manuscripts opens with a set of illustrated canon tables. Devised by the fourth century Bishop, Bishop Eusebius of Caesarea in Palestine, canon tables provide a system which lists by line number all the parallel passages found in the four Gospels. Canon tables provide a formula for the message of all four Gospels to come into one harmonious and perfect agreement while keeping each Gospel intact. Not only does the Eusebian canons serve as a useful index of the Gospel text, but they also present a numerical summary of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ enclosed within a framework that can exhibit the unity of the gospel account in visual form. Embodying such an important religious message, it is no wonder that the canon tables receive such, such beauty in medieval Ethiopian manuscripts. To focus on one of the most elaborate examples, um, and I'm showing you one opening, but sort of picture seven such tables in this one manuscript. The tops of the arches are variously filled with colorful bands of tightly organized geometric pattern, surmounted by scalloped edges or luxurious mass of plant growth. The supporting columns display a comparable amount of embellishment with their vibrantly patterned shafts and sculpted capitals. A rich variety of birds fly around the edges of the columns and appear interspersed between clusters of fruit and blooming plants that spring up from the top of the arches. In this sumptuous assortment of decoration, every turn of the page unveils the fusion of solid architectural form with dynamic vegetal and bird life. In the medieval gospel manuscripts, the canon table series culminates in an image of an architectural structure that is often round-shaped and consisting of a conical roof supported on columns. 
This structure is often called the fountain of life. You can see an example of this miniature on view here at the exhibition or in the gallery. An example of this image from the Zirganella Gospels, now at the Morgan Library in New York, shown on your left, and dated between 1400 and 1401, illustrates an architectural structure with an elaborate conical roof crowned by a cross at its summit and set atop a curved cornice supported by four columns. A set of three knotted curtains hangs between the variegated columns, while birds of various kinds are perched atop and on either side of the structure. Two stylized trees, labeled in Ge'ez as trees, translation, trees of paradise, and animals resembling deer flank the columns. These essential features of the composition can also be seen on the miniature of the Cabran Gospels on the right, although in this case, the circular form of the structure is rendered much more prominently. These images fall within the well-known medieval Christian iconographic tradition of the so-called Tempieto or Tholos buildings in Armenian and Georgian Gospels, as well as the Fountain of Life miniatures in two Latin illuminated manuscripts from the Carolingian period. A remarkable feature of the Ethiopian miniature is that is the way in which the imagery seems to combine elements found independently in Armenian and Latin traditions. Returning to our previous examples, we can see that in the Ethiopian miniatures, while retaining the basic architectural components, such as the conical roof, the cross at the top, and the columns, the building incorporates the curtains found also in Armenian miniatures, but not in the Latin ones. The pair of trees flanking the building is another feature not found in Latin miniatures, but is common to both Ethiopian and Armenian types. On the other hand, the large variety of birds, and especially the deer, appear only in the Ethiopian and Latin miniatures, and not in the Armenian ones. When we examine the Ethiopian image, not as a miniature in isolation, but alongside the canon tables that precede it, and the images of Christ that follow it, we can observe that instead of betraying a reliance on foreign models, the components of this image reveal a carefully constructed image integrated within the physical structure of the gospel manuscript while firmly grounded in its theological significance. Within an Ethiopian gospel manuscript, an inscription always accompanies this miniature which sheds further light on the significance of its placement and relationship to the canon tables. The inscriptions, which do not appear in either Latin or Armenian examples, translate as harmony or order of the canons in some manuscripts, or as harmony of the canons, how the four gospels agree in their words in other manuscripts. The decorated canon tables and the miniatures of the round building at the end, therefore, serve as a form of visual commentary on the unity and harmony of the Gospels, signifying that although there are four Gospels, they all express the same divine message. The accompanying imagery of birds, deer, and lush vegetation conveys an image of paradise, symbolizing the eternal salvation gained through faith in the divine Gospel. Another pictorial feature that the medieval Ethiopian gospel manuscripts share with the Garima gospels is the portrayal of evangelists, or writers of the gospel. These can be found at the beginning of each gospel in the manuscript. Each evangelist appears either seated or standing on the page facing the opening passage of his gospel. And you can see several examples here that show both seated and standing evangelists. Here's one of my uh, favorite examples, which is a depiction of the evangelist John. Um, and a neat thing about a lot of Ethiopian manuscripts is that they're really interested in labeling what these pictures are. So here you have, sorry, I can't quite see it from here, but Didn't hear me. So on the on the top it says Ila Kadus Yohannes Wangilawi or image of 
of St. John the Evangelist. And a neat, another neat thing is that um, he is writing on parchment the first, the opening lines of his gospel. So in the beginning was the, was the word. And then you have on the upper side the sort of tools of his trade, so his pen and ink. While retaining the illustrated canon tables and evangelist portraits that also appear in the Garima Gospels, manuscripts produced between the 13th and 15th centuries begin to incorporate a completely new feature of gospel illumination. Immediately after the canon tables and the so-called fountain of life image, these manuscripts include a series of narrative images illustrating the life of Christ. We can divide these manuscripts into two main groups according to the number of Christological scenes they contain. The so-called short cycle consists of three main scenes of Christ's life, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. And on the left, in the image of the crucifixion, you can see an enigmatic image which is unique to Ethiopian illuminated gospels, and that is the empty cross, which does not feature the suffering body of Christ. You don't see here the death of Christ, but the sign of the cross as the symbol of his victory over death. The so-called long cycle includes as many as 18 scenes illustrating the life of Christ from the Annunciation to the Ascension. And you have at the very beginning here, I'm gonna find my cursor, just, oh, there we go. The angel Gabriel announcing to the Virgin Mary that she'll bear Christ, the Nativity, the Adoration of the Magi, the Massacre of the Innocents, where King Herod orders the death of the firstborn Hebrew children, the presentation of Christ in the temple, the baptism of Christ, the transfiguration, the entry into Jerusalem, the washing of the feet on Holy Thursday, the arrest of Christ, the denial of Peter, and here you can see the rooster, the passion of Christ on the cross, the deposition, the entombment of Christ, the resurrection here presented by the three women who come to visit the tomb of Christ in the morning. And here's an apocryphal scene that's not in the Gospels. It's the so-called harrowing of hell or um, the uh, account of Christ going into the underworld before his resurrection. And here you have the message of the three women um, revealing the um, resurrection of Christ to the others. And finally, you have the ascension of Christ witnessed by his disciples. Among the densely illustrated long cycle of frontispieces, one scene always occupies a prominent placement within the imagery of the gospel book. This scene portrays Christ's entry into Jerusalem and always appears across, across a double page or an opening in these manuscripts. The Ethiopian illustration of Christ's entry takes full ad advantage of the physical properties of a book in order to communicate its narrative content and its symbolic message. The imagery is spread across two pages, allowing us to read and view the story of the sacred event unfold from left to right. This physical structuring constructs a critical relationship between the miniatures that precede the double page and the miniatures that follow it. Viewing the sequence of Christological scenes, this miniature stands exactly between the scenes of Christ's early life that come before it and scenes of Christ's passion that come after it. The representation of Christ's entry into Jerusalem across a double page serves as a, as a literal and conceptual turning point in the life of Christ. As he enters Jerusalem, he enters the site of his passion, death, and resurrection. 
Ultimately, Christ's triumphal entry is a proclamation of his, of his, is, sorry, ultimately Christ's triumphal proclamation as the Messiah in Jerusalem foreshadows his triumphal victory over death. Alongside the production of illuminated manuscripts, the art of painted icons or religious images painted on wood panels developed in the mid-1400s. And here you have the two most common shapes of these icons. You have a triptych on the left consisting of three panels that would close and open. Similarly, a diptych, you have two panels that would also close and open. The period witnessed a rise in the veneration of the Virgin Mary, mainly through the systematic efforts of the Emperor Zerayagob, who ruled between 1434 and 1468, and instituted the formal veneration of, the, of Mary in the Ethiopian church, including the celebration of 32 feasts in her honor. Before the 15th century, the surviving images of Mary appear only in manuscripts or wall paintings within narrative scenes that illustrate the life of Christ or in apocryphal scenes of her own life. Portraits of Mary enthroned and holding the Christ child painted on wood panels begin to play a major role only in the 15th century when Zerayagob mandated the veneration of her image during the liturgy of the church. The emperor's decrees and the growing veneration of Mary attest to the increasingly important place of religious images in Christian worship and devotion of 15th century Ethiopia. Large painted panels played a central role in liturgical ceremonies and processions, while smaller portable panels served as private devotional and protective objects. And when you see these in the, um, ex there are icons that are displayed in the gallery and the scale difference in these will, I think, really strike you. Painted icons present images of the Virgin Mary and Christ surrounded by archangels and saints, and often include copious Ge'ez inscriptions that identify the holy figures or record prayers. As with illuminated manuscripts, painted icons emphasize the intertwined roles of texts and image in Ethiopian art. The earliest securely dated Ethiopian icon is the monumental panel painting signed by the monk artist Freitz Ion, completed at the monastery of Daga Estefanos in the northwestern, in northwestern Ethiopia during the reign of the Emperor Zerayagob. A remarkable aspect of this painting is that it provides us with the earliest surviving artist's signature in Ethiopian art. The signature inscribed on the lower register of the painting translates as, this picture was made in the days of our King Zerayagob and our Abba Isaac of Dekka, and the painter is I, Fritzion, the humble sinner from Debra Gobbin. Remember me in your prayers, O children or monks of this place, forever and ever. Amen. In the center of the panel, we see the Virgin Mary and Christ child flanked by the adoring archangels Michael and Gabriel. The Virgin and child, seated centrally and clothed in voluminously flowing garments, are united in a tender embrace. The Virgin holds the Christ child closely with both hands, while the child hugs his mother with one hand and clutches at her breast with the other hand, suckling. Mother and child occupy the central and most important position in a composition that also includes archangels and the saints Stephen, Peter, and Paul in the lower register. Set within the most sacred part of the church, this large icon would have provided a powerful visual accompaniment to the liturgical celebration of the Eucharist. When Mary's role as intercessor or mediator between the faithful and Christ would also be celebrated. Ethiopian icons commemorate the intercessory roles of saints as well. As you can see here, some of the most celebrated saints, including St. George, here on this part of the, of the icon, including St. George, the martyr saint honored by Christians throughout the medieval world, the apostles Peter and Paul, 
and Old Testament patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as you can see in my last example, Ethiopian icons illustrated and honored local saints as well. In this icon, which is on view here in the gallery, we see on the left an image of Saint Gabra Memphis Kutus, who according to the story of his life, lived in the desert and worshiped God. Gabra Memphis Kutus was so devout that God allowed him to dwell among leopards and lions. While living in the desert as a hermit, he developed thick white hair covering and protecting his whole body. On the right, we see Saints Tekla Haimanot and Saint Iwastatios, two of the most important monastic saints in Ethiopian Christianity. As monastic leaders, they established monasteries that became important centers of monasticism and learning in Ethiopia. These local saints can be visually recognized by the faithful by their attributes. For instance, here you have sort of flowing hair of Gabra Memphis and the little leopards and lions on either side. And saints Takla Haimanut and Eustasios can be identified by their uh, sort of pre, uh, monastic abbot um, garb holding their sort of hand crosses. It's important to add here that texts recording the life of these local saints were composed in this period. So the, and the excerpts from these texts would be read to the faithful in church. So the icons give a physical and visual um, form through which the faithful can commemorate and express their devotion to these local saints. I end my presentation today by reiterating my hope that I've provided you with some context with which to appreciate the creative sophistication and rich symbolic meaning of Ethiopian art. And as I leave you to stand in front of this image or icon here on view in the gallery and to contemplate its meaning. Thank you. Do we have any questions for Mesret? Okay, we're just going to grab a mic. I want to remind those who came a little bit later to the presentation that we will be uh, hosting the audience upstairs to see some of these objects in the flesh, so don't hesitate to follow us up after uh, the Q&A is over. All right, Where was Annie, that hand? We have a question right here uh, with the hand raised. Uh, thank you. I love your presentation. Thank you very much. I just loved your presentation. Oh, thank My you. question isn't directly linked, but I've been dying to meet an expert in Ethiopian uh, medieval art to ask this question, so I thought I'd try which is when I've been to Ethiopia, a lot of the imagery is about the Book of Mary. And I don't really understand what the Book of Mary is. You don't really understand? Is, okay, so um, because I'm focused on the ancient and sort of medieval aspect of Ethiopian art, I did not cover, as it is, and there's plenty more, it's quite difficult to cover it all. I encourage you to definitely see the um, exhibit and be inspired to learn more, hopefully. Um, but I did not mention the uh, very important text um, called The Miracles of Mary, um, which has a, a central role in um, the veneration of Mary in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And um, by the 15th, 16th century, um, the, this text, uh, written in manuscripts, is one of the most uh, extensively illuminated uh, uh, genres of Ethiopian manuscripts. So I work prominently, most like, uh, sorry, I work mostly on gospel manuscripts, so I, I don't work on the Miracles of Mary texts uh, or, or uh, images, but um, these manuscripts contain uh, in 
illustrated form almost all these stories contained within the these stories of Mary um, in which she um, uh, helps uh, those uh, Christians who are um, faithful to her and pray to her. So it's a text and a sort of imagery that really highlights her role as intercessor between the faithful and Christ and in the Ethiopian church. So, um, and so, you know, by the sort of 17th, 18th, and 19th century, and today, um, there are numerous uh, images of Mary and her miracles that sort of end up on wall paintings uh, and sort of all around uh, churches. Uh, and still today in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, um, after the liturgy, the, uh, uh, a miracle from that text is read to, to, the, uh, to the faithful. So I hope that helps or gives you a context for um, these images that you've come across. If most of the countries that are around Ethiopia are um, have the majority of the population being Muslim, then why isn't Ethiopia, why isn't the majority of their population Muslim? I can't see where you are. Oh, oh okay, so, yes. Can you repeat your question, please? Sorry, I was... Oh, okay. Stan? Yeah. Okay. My question is, is that if the majority of countries that are around Ethiopia are Muslim populated, or the majority of the population is Muslim, then why isn't the majority of the Ethiopian population Muslim? Um, so that's a, an interesting question uh, that, you know, that I, <laughs> I would not be able to answer in a, in a short amount of time. And there are historians who are probably better uh, at answering that, but I would, I would um, you know, tell you that uh, today, uh, a large portion of the Ethiopian population uh, are followers of the Islamic faith. Um, Ethiopia is, um, as again, I should sort of preface this by saying that I am a scholar of Ethiopian Christian art. So that is uh, overwhelmingly sort of what, you know, the, the, that was the topic of my presentation because that's my area of exp expertise. But I would, I would um, you know, sort of say that Ethiopia today is um, a country which has um, sort of an early history of two very impo important faiths, Christianity and Islam. So Islam reached Ethiopia um, already by the seventh century. So it's another monotheistic religion that has a long history in Ethiopia. And there are incredibly beautiful uh, Islamic manuscripts and, and as well, uh, most of which date, or the earliest of which date from the 17th century. So there is a considerable uh, Muslim population in Ethiopia as well. So I, I hope that answers your question. I'm not an expert. Well, first I want to say thank you. Um, I'm not an expert, but just to touch on her question, I would like to say that um, Islam, from what I researched, Islam came after Orthodox, and Orthodox means original, so that kind of uh, answers your question. But um, my question is, a lot of the images show um, Mariam with her feet uncovered, no shoes, and even some of the saints. Do you know why? With their, with their sorry, with their feet. With no shoes, like their feet are ah. uncovered. Um, that's, yes. Um, I've, the examples I've picked here. I don't see that, but um, I mean, I, I don't have a, sort of a very, um, you know, we don't have sort of textual evidence unless I know there are some text people here who can correct me and, and even more uh, sort of revered uh, figures than that. Um, but I take it as a sort of, you know, these are holy figures who are occupying, let's say, celestial realms and, and, and sort of, um, you know, I think that that perhaps is, is part of it. I mean, it, today in, in, uh, in Ethiopian churches, uh, the faithful enter and remove their shoes before they enter. So it's, um, yeah, I, I would interpret it in terms of that, if that helps. Yeah. So we're just going to do one more question so everyone has lots of time to go upstairs and see the work. So I think there's one person up here who's been waiting for a while. Thank you, Mr. That was a beautiful presentation. Oh, I really enjoyed you. it. Um, I have one question regarding um, the portrait, the depiction of good and evil in Ethiopian uh, paintings. Okay. I noticed that uh, you see both eyes when you're, when angels or St. Mary or Jesus Christ is being painted, but you see only one eyes when there's 
the dragon, for example, there, or any evil forces. Can you elaborate if there's any logic behind this? Thank you. Thanks. Yes, this is a sort of a common iconographic feature that is still that can be seen in sort of modern paintings, and by modern I mean 19th and uh, early 20th century religious paintings in um, in Ethiopia. What I find, and, and it's, this is often given as an explanation of, you know, frontal figures with two eyes are protagonists, and then you have sort of the villains in, shown in profile. And this is um, particularly striking in uh, secular paintings that show the Battle of Adwa, where you have the Ethiopians um, shown frontally with two eyes, and then the sort of the Italian foe in profile. What what strikes me is that this isn't really something that I see in the manuscripts that I study. Uh, so the early medieval manuscripts, this is not a pattern, this is not an iconographic pattern that is consistent. So I'm sort of, I myself, this is a question that I have as, as to, you know, what what leads to this iconographic convention in the later period. So. So I don't know if you, uh, you know, uh, I'm happy to share other images uh, if you ask me uh, that that don't really illustrate this um, in the early period. So it's an interesting question. Thank you. Well, I think um, it's always very sad to say that uh, that was the last question, and it's <laughs> only because we we do want to save time to go upstairs. So I'd encourage you all to come upstairs and to be patient when we get there because we will, you know, if we all go up, we'll have to sort of split up a little bit. And I'd ask, um, because it is a secure space, that when you come into the space that any sort of loose baggage or um, clothing, if you could just leave it in the beautiful reception area where it will be protected and um, overseen so that when you go in to see the art, which is uh, often quite small, uh, that you can do so with confidence that you and the art will be safe. Um, but in the meantime, I do want to say thank you, Meserat, for an amazing talk. And um, 